You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, normally... Uh, I would start the show with some banal small talk about your coffee or how you've been on a jury or how the cold snap we're currently enjoying. Um, but we got a lot of shit to get to this week. Um, and frankly, I'm excited for this show. You're saying ain't nobody got time for that? Ain't nobody got time for that. Okay. We got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. I think it, I think this is going to be a good show. Oh, well, now you cursed us. Thanks. You Way think? to go, Chad. You think we're gonna just going to punt from here? We should just start over. Well, Ben, this week's music comes to us from listener Kyle Kelly Yonner and his studio project called Edwin Valero. If you like what you hear, you can check out more of their stuff at soundcloud.com slash Edwin Valero SF. Did he explain what Edwin Valero means? No, uh-uh. All right. It's just the name of the project. I'm sure that won't keep me up at night or anything. Thanks. Obviously, we'll put the link to that on our website once we get this episode posted. Three rounds, as usual, this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, if you guys don't mind, Luke Rockhold is just going to roll up in here looking like an extra from 300, choke Michael Bisping out with one goddamn arm, and then jet out like it's no big deal. And in round number two, we all agree it would be pretty neat if Mark Hunt became UFC interim heavyweight champion, but would it be neat enough to overshadow yet another injury to Cain Velasquez and the denial of the arguably more deserving Fabricio Verdum? Discuss. And in round three, maybe we just skip the fight and go straight to the Spike TV reality show where Stefan Bonner and Tito Ortiz rescue pit bulls and train them to be service dogs for senior citizens or blind orphans or whatever. All that plus Master Tweet Theater, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us this week from Dan Barnes. He writes, on November 17th, the UFC will hold a press fan event where it will lay out the whole 2015 schedule. Uh, They have also teased a quote-unquote very special announcement. Please speculate irresponsibly on what this could be. An Invicta buyout, a Brock Lesnar return, a Dana White sex change. Wow. Yeah. Dan Barnes will be here all week. <laughs> Tip your bartender, try the prime rib. Now, how did you interpret this when you heard that this is what they're going to do with their special big announcement? They announced the whole schedule. Because on one hand, I feel like as MMA fans, we're conditioned to like have a sense of dread about something like that. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. As soon as like the... Uh the JPEG-laden email goes out promising a big announcement that we have to mark our calendars that we won't want to miss this special date, uh, you automatically assume the worst, that it's just going to be like the most underwhelming, disappointing, uh, Dave Manet is coming out of retirement style <laughs> announcement that you could possibly imagine. Well, and we've learned that through history. That is a, a learned response on our part. Uh, but like with something like this, especially because of the difficulty the UFC has had in keeping events together and you know keeping the the best laid plans uh, from falling apart completely at the last minute, I almost interpreted this as just kind of like a big fuck you to the the forces of the universe that keep messing with uh, UFC events and just 
just laying it all out on the table and bidding the injury bug to do its worst. I almost like I, I almost have to admire it. And it's just sheer optimism and stupidity, perhaps. Yeah, and I think, you know, you talk about learned responses. I think we're also uh, coached to believe that the UFC has ulterior motives for shit. So, like, whenever <laughs> the they, hell you say. Whenever they announce something like this, you're always trying to figure out, why would they do that? Like, what's the angle here? Like, what's going on? Uh, but, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's just a... Uh, just a uh, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt style uh, proclamation of blind optimism that will be receiving a new deal for the UFC in 2015. Um, I think it'll be interesting, though, because it will. I mean, we'll, at least we'll find out right up front if uh, all of this talk about oversaturation and the kind of uh, rough year that the UFC has had in 2014 has affected their planning at all. Uh, if they're just going to come out and tell us the number of what they're going to do in, in 2015. And we assume the dates and maybe the, the places if we're lucky, uh, uh, because there won't be any way to hide that, you know, they'll either do 47 or more again next year, or, or they'll do fewer. And no matter how they try to paint a picture of it, if they do fewer, then you know, that, that, they know they're, they they recognize that something had gone off the rails this year. Although they were already talking uh, last weekend, I think the guy who runs UFC Brazil was saying uh, they expect to do seven shows in Brazil next year. So if they're doing that, like if you know they're going to do that number down there, I wouldn't expect any fewer than forty-seven total shows next year. Yeah, well, and I was thinking about that too. That you know, you're right. If they come out and say. 35 shows next year then it's kind of like aha so you admit you admit that this was too much and now you're backing off like which would be great i think i think that would be the smart decision i also think that they couldn't make that decision right now even if they wanted to uh but if they come out and say like we're doing 63 shows next year uh you know then i don't know is that when like they look out and all the reporters are burying their faces in their hands and uh just a, a pall falls over the room also this very special announcement uh of the the irresponsible options laid out here by dan barnes as much as i would like the idea of a dana white sex change on the grounds that he's totally already done everything you can possibly do as a fucking man so he's gonna go ahead and be a woman and own that shit now uh which would be awesome i think the brock lesnar return is probably the the most likely of those options and i think that too would say something because uh, you know this seems to get teased every once in a while that Brock Lesnar might come back and and how huge it would be and all that kind of stuff if Brock Lesnar were to come back wouldn't that also just be like a thing of like hey we realized that the last time this shit was super popular was like 2010 so what were we doing back then oh yeah like let's go back like basically just roll out the old blueprint and try and follow that again yeah, on the scheduling tip, if they do go back to 47 or more, I feel like that turns 2015 then into a real pivotal year for the UFC because, you know, that would give, that will give us the opportunity to find out, uh, if the thing that derailed 2014 really was all of these injuries that they've had, uh, or if even with a full complement of healthy champions, if it's, if the 2015 schedule still felt like it really dragged, uh, then I think we would know that something was wrong. I suppose if you, if you do want 2015 to be a, a big success, then as far as the UFC is concerned, having a dude like Brock Lesnar come back would be would be kind of a, a big deal. Um, I think you would be more likely to see a GSP return uh, just because we've we've got photographic evidence of him being back in the gym. We know that he met with for dinner with Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta in Montreal a couple weeks ago. Uh, 
And the, even though he came out and assured us that they didn't try to convince him to come back, I don't know what else they would talk about. Yeah. Uh, so, so we'll see what happens. The selfishly, of the, the Habs. Selfishly, I hope that it's Brock Lesnar because I often sit around uh, kind of mourning the fact that the co-main event podcast missed the entire Brock Lesnar era and how just fucking fun that would have been for us to be able to do a weekly podcast about the the newest goings on with the dark lord of the sith brock <laughs> lesnar uh i don't think that the return turns out very well for brock lesnar uh because you know we've heard a lot of talk about the diverticulitis narrative and how that's what derailed his ufc career um but it seems a little bit more practical to think that what derailed brock lesnar's ufc career was that his stand-up never caught up with his wrestling and uh kind of seemed like he never liked to get punched in the face very much. And hey, man, who can blame him? Yeah. Nobody on earth wants to get punched in the face by Shane Carwin. I yeah. mean, come on. Well, uh, also, though, I think that the the whole special announcement thing, it it feels like you're, you're almost setting yourself up for a situation where you can't possibly do anything that we won't make fun of at least right. a little bit. I mean, if you come out there and say, oh, we finally signed Gina Carano, then everybody's going to be like, Really? You you brought us all here for this? Uh, so, I mean, that part is... I'm interested to see the schedule, because I think, like you said, it'll tell us a lot about what's going to happen and what kind of year 2015 is going to be. The special announcement thing, uh, you feel like you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, it's almost like better when they if they roll it out without telling anyone, right? right? Like, yeah. remember, like the, when remember when John Anik did that run-in at the UFC uh, press conference? I think it was before the, the uh, event where BJ Penn fought uh, Nick Diaz in Las Vegas. Uh the the UFC had signed John Anik on the sly oh, okay. and nobody knew and then they brought him out at at a press conference where we like we signed a, one of the talents we targeted this year that we wanted to get he's here John Anik and it was like was a an eighty year old like yes, they, horse racing yeah. bookie uh, announcing yep, this they had George Burns okay. come out and do oh. it uh, next question this week comes to us from Wayne F of North Idaho I like him specifying that. Yeah, so Coeur d'Alene, maybe, you think? Yeah. Salmon? Maybe Sandpoint? Yeah. He writes, so MMA Junkie, to plug, so MMA Junkie did a story last week about some dude who was asked to make weight as a reserve. I guess he was paid his show money to make weight and potentially save the main event in case someone suffered a cut backstage while warming up or some shit. No, I don't care enough to look up his name, but is the UFC onto something here? Seeing as the guy probably only got paid somewhere between eight and $10,000, could it be worth it to the UFC to make a habit of asking a third party to make weight for a headlining fight so at least one of its headliners can appear on a show? Please discuss and thank you. Um, so, yeah, this is this is... This is true marginally, right? Because the guy it was uh, what's the guy's name? Francimar Barroso. Of course, him, Frankie B. Yeah, uh, he was supposed to fight Ovin St. Prue, right? But then Jimmy Manawa got injured and had to pull out of the Shogun fight. Ovin St. Prue gets boosted into the main event, and suddenly Frankie B uh, is without an opponent. So they just had him show up and make weight just in case. Uh, so more like circumstances beyond their control rather than actual good planning. Although I don't know, is, is Wayne F right? Should this kind of thing maybe go on more often? Well, this wasn't, you know, we've seen this before sometimes where somebody will, uh, if they pull out the week of the fight and the guy's already there and then he has to show up and, and make weight in order to get his show money, that kind of stuff. Uh, but this was, I mean, this one, the change was made far enough in advance that it did seem like more of a like premeditated contingency plan to have this guy show up, make weight, and be ready just in case. Yeah, uh, they should have had him show up and make 125, as it turned <laughs> out, right? <laughs> well, yeah, 
I mean, I do think that uh, it's not a terrible idea. I think it's just not going to be also super practical all the time because uh, what you're going to have, especially if you're looking at main event kind of fights, is you got to have somebody who's going to show up and make way who doesn't already have another fight booked, who is not already you know important enough to where they'd feel like. What, you want me to be a fucking standby? Are you kidding me? Like, I I don't do that. You know, Donald Cerrone, you know, he might do it. That kind of guy. But most <laughs> other people... Just there all the time. Most other people who are, like, main event caliber are not going to be willing to be, uh, you know, a standby guy. Even if it is a pretty easy paycheck to just make weight, show up, and, and get paid. Uh, but it isn't... You know, it's not a bad idea in that situation where you already got the guy sitting around there. Why not bring him on over? Uh, have him go through the process? Because, hell, man... If you haven't learned by now that shit can happen at the last minute, then you never will. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how how plausible it's going to be as a big-picture solution, uh, but it's at least good to see that the UFC is thinking about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't even feel like it's a nice idea, but also I feel like you're right that it does seem totally implausible. I mean, like, it's already, I would have to imagine, an enormous headache to be a UFC matchmaker uh, because those guys are dealing with a lot of stuff that... We don't oftentimes think about when we sit down and knock out our our obligatory "What's next?" column after every single UFC event. Got to do that, yeah. Uh, the uh, you know they they have to keep track of people's contracts and who they owe fights to and and who who fought when and who's on whose team and who's friends with who. Well, and, uh, and right now they're only doing that with twos. You know, one one fight at a time. Can you imagine if they had to do it like? in uh, variables of three yeah like, come on you could watch uh like joe silva like in the indiana jones and the last crusade just like really suddenly age uh and then become a skeleton and turn to dust right before your very eyes if you even suggested that he would have to do that and also i mean there's i as they have pointed out before when they're allowed to actually talk openly there's a lot of stuff that we don't consider that goes right, to, yeah. like uh you know i was talking to the to sean shelby i think fairly recently about uh you know hey what about this guy i heard you're looking at him like is is that true or is that just something his manager is telling me you know to try and get me more interested in writing a story about him uh, and, you know, he said something about like, hey, you know, if I had an extra roster spot for that guy, I'd have signed him already. And I tried to sign this other guy. And, I, you know, as soon as I went and told him like, hey, guess what? Good news. You're in. Uh, then the guy's management was basically like, uh, no, he actually he's kind of fat right now. He can't really do it. Like, isn't you know, it, like you just don't think about that kind of stuff that. Uh, especially dealing with fighters, you know, the guy's girlfriend breaks up with him, he gets kicked out of the apartment or something, and then you want to call him and have him fight two or three weeks later, and he's just not, not ready to go and, and turn around and do that. I wonder if it seems almost more plausible to kind of do it two fights at a time instead of like having an alternate who's only there just to make weight in case one guy drops out to kind of book fights in twos where you would always make sure that you had, or not, maybe not always, but a lot of times make sure that you had like two light heavyweight fights on the same card so that, you know, if something happened where Jimmy Manoa gets injured, at least then you do have an Ovin St. Prue to, to throw out there, you know? That seems slightly more practical. And I think that at times it seemed like maybe the UFC has done that. It's tough to tell how intentionally they've done that. Uh, but that does seem like something that you could do. And then also, if those people are on kind of the same trajectories, the UFC likes to match winners up with winners and losers up with losers, then you got the guys who, you know, they they fought at the same time. They ideally should be ready to fight again at the same time. Uh, and so it kind of, like, the the trick, I guess, is getting everybody on that schedule and keeping them there. 
Next question comes to us this week from handsome Pat Fannin. He writes, you might do a whole round about Ovin St. Prue knocking out Mauricio Hua, but here goes anyway. Will St. Prue's victory be at least slightly overshadowed by the quote-unquote Shogun should retire talk? Is that fair? Um, I think yes and no. I feel like at least in the in the short term, OSP's win against Shogun Hua is unfortunately going to be overshadowed a little bit. Uh, by the negative ramifications for Shogun more so than the positive ramifications for Ovin St. Prue. But I don't think that that's going to be true in the long run. I feel like, you know, we're all kind of burning a torch for Shogun right now because he used to be great and now he seems kind of at the end of his rope. Uh, but this, spo- this, this sport moves on pretty fast. And so I have a feeling that, you know, a month or two from now, uh, Ovin St. Prue is going to kind of reap the rewards of, of this victory. Um, because let's face it, this is a big win for this guy and and um, he comes in ranked number 10 overall on the official light heavyweight rankings uh, this week. The new ones came out. I think he moved up to number seven. Uh, so as long as the UFC matchmakers don't take his own advice and book him in a fight against someone <laughs> like Anthony Paroche or Fabio Maldonado, like this guy at this point, Ovin St. Preux should sort of be expecting someone and, you know, another fight against a guy in the top 10 range, if not top five, you know, and I thought it was surprising that he came out and called out Paroche and, uh, and, uh, Maldonado because, you know, most of the guys in the top five there are, uh, still looking for fights. You got Anthony Johnson just coming back off suspension. He's not booked against anyone. Uh, Alexander Gustafson has been linked to a fight with Rashad Evans, but that one hasn't been made yet. Um, I think that one's not going to be made. Rashad Evans, I think, wants a little more time with, right. with his injury. And it seems like Anthony Johnson and, and Gustafson might might do the damn thing. But then, you know, if you're OSP, shoot, man. Call out Evans. Call out anybody. Uh, but... Here's the thing that I keep coming back to with Ovin St. Preux. Like, he went out there and did exactly what the UFC is always asking guys to do, right? He was ready. He was advantageous when an opportunity okay. showed itself. And then he went out there and was aggressive and scored a super surprising 34-second knockout of Shogun Hua. And even if that, we think right now, reflects more on the declining nature of Shogun Hua than OSP, like... I don't know, man. It's hard to ask much more from that guy at this point, I think. Yeah, no, it is. I think this is going to be one of those things where, like you said, in the short term right now, it's going to be everybody thinking, oh, what's next for Shogun? Like, what did this just do to him? Uh, but I think a lot is going to depend on what we see from Ovin St. Preux in his next fight, regardless of who he fights. Yeah. I mean, even if he does fight somebody like Fabio Maldonado or Anthony Paroche, uh, both of whom seemed just as surprised as we were, but also w- totally willing to, to take that fight. Uh, I think that uh, if he goes out there and he beats somebody like that and really looks good doing it, uh, or beats anybody really, then we'll kind of look back and go, all right, that Shogun knockout, that might have been the beginning of something. That, that right. was that was the, the snowball rolling down the hill. If, however, he goes out there and looks mediocre or, or loses or something in his next fight, then everybody is going to look back on that one and be like, well, you, you caught Shogun with a good left hook at the end of his career, uh, and that's what happened. You know, I mean, he, he did, I say this, Owen St. Preux had that same look on his face after that fight as Johnny Hendricks did when he knocked out John Fitch with like his very first punch of the fight, where you could tell even he was surprised as all hell that it went down that way. Yeah, um... But I thought like he, you know, aside from the fact that he that he called out was two totally weird dudes, like I felt like this was kind of a likable appearance for Ovin St. Preux. I felt like he he pulled it off kind of well. And and that reminded me uh, 
kind of of the value of guys like of Ovin St. Prue and Luke Rockhold, who we're going to talk more about, obviously, uh, coming up in round one. But in this current climate of the UFC and the schedule that we have today, um, the UFC needs dudes like Luke Rockhold and Ovin St. Prue right now more than it ever has before. And for all of its talk about who moves the needle and who it's going to pay money to, et cetera, et cetera, you can't really have the current UFC if it's going to do 50 shows a year and it wants to go to Uberlandia in the middle of November and it wants to go to Sydney in the middle of November, you need guys like Ovin St. Prue and Luke Rockhold to be there to main event the damn thing because their value at this point is really that we know who they are. And like, that's kind of a flippant way to say it, but like maybe the more uh, specific way to say it is that we are marginally invested in these guys' careers. Like we've watched Ovin St. Prue in Strike Force. We watched him in the UFC. We've kind of seen him come along a little bit uh, over the, over the course of several fights. And, you know, even if we didn't know it leading up to this fight, he's always been a guy who we've regarded as a prospect. And so therefore, at least at the very least, had a storyline attached to his name, and then he comes out and knocks out Shogun Hua, and then you can say, oh, okay, well, Ovin St. Prue is 31 years old, but maybe he still has time left to make good on this tremendous potential that we've always known that he's had. So just by virtue of the fact that he has some investment from fans in who he is, he's valuable because that's a thing that not a ton of dudes on the UFC roster can say right now. Uberlandia is beautiful in November, from what I hear, by the way. Yeah, well, it's so beautiful, people can't even stomach the thought of going to sleep. They just had to stay up all night. <laughs> in an unair conditioned venue. Have you ever seen an arena clear out faster than that? That was crazy. I've never seen an arena go as silent. Uh, I mean, when he, when he knocked out Shogun, it was like the audio feed was suddenly cut. It Except for then the screaming of joy from OSP in his corner. That was just an immediate, like, just sadness like that's what sadness sounds like yeah it was certainly one of the quietest stoppages in ufc history and it gave the impression that the good people of uberlandia saw the stoppage and just immediately dropped their beers and sprinted for the exits (laughs) because by the time john anik gets in the cage for the post-fight interview it's just deserted in there he's talking to a bunch of empty seats it's crazy yeah well they want to beat the the traffic the traffic in uberlandia oh man you wouldn't yeah, believe but it. They do have that public transportation system, though. The, sure, uh, sure the tram, the Uberlandia tram. Yeah. It's uh, it's one of the most efficient. It goes systems from of public North Uberlandia to South Uberlandia. In yeah, well, you don't want to wind up in South Uberlandia at four o'clock in the morning, my friend. <laughs> I'll just tell you that right now. Well, that's going to do it this week for uh, listener mail. If you have a question, comment, or a concern to air to the podcast in future weeks. You know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, I don't know what you even say about Luke Rockhold at this point, except kind of seems like maybe he's the future. Uh, he goes out there and uh, 
kicks Michael Bisping in the gut a bunch of times in the first round, uh, albeit a first round where Luke Rockhold looked fairly patient and uh, confident and seemed like he was willing to just sort of take Bisping's measure during the first five minutes. And then in the second round, he tries one of those weird, what are they called, hook kicks? What are those things that he that he threw out Question there? mark kick, Question maybe? mark kick, I don't know. Uh, Some strip mall karate studio <laughs> shit. <laughs> That's right. And then follows that up by kicking Michael Bisping in his damn head, goes to the ground with a flurry of punches, moves to mount. Uh, well, actually, he pulled, goes to, pulled guillotine choke, I guess. Yeah, he pulled a guard into the guillotine choke and then, the guillotine choke, and then used it to roll him over. With one arm, had the choke with one arm and, and forces the, with a first submission in Michael Bisping's career, right? right? So, uh, wow, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, and I mean, it was one of those performances too where, uh, like you said, really calm and patient in the first round. And when I was talking to Luke Rockhold before this one, he was saying that that's one of the things he feels like he's really learned in the last couple fights that before, his big thing used to always be he wanted to get that first engagement or two out of the way and get the nerves out of the way. And so instead of really thinking about how he wanted to go about attacking, he just wanted to go in there, trade some punches, hit the other guy, and be hit just so that initial kind of butterflies uh, dissipates. And you can understand how, how that would be something a, a guy would feel. And he felt like that really hurt him in the Vitor Belfort fight. That and If you go back and watch that one, he does look – he looks really stiff. Uh, and really kind of just uncomfortable. It looked stiff at the end, too. Oh, oh I see what you did. Gotcha. Yeah. Nice one. Uh, and, and it seemed like it cost him, like he wasn't really doing what he could, the, the full extent of what he could do. And he was saying that he felt like in the Tim Boach fight and the, the Costa Filippo fight that he was really calm, uh, and really patient and that it showed. And you could really see that, I think, in the Bisping fight where he was just not rushing anything, wasn't worried about anything. It also helps. When you're that much bigger than the dude and you can just kick him from such a great distance that he can't make you pay really for any of the kicks. He can't, you know, rush in there and, and try to punish you for any of them because he just can't get to you in time. And you're just standing on the outside basically kicking him with impunity. And that's what his corner told him between rounds is just more kicks. And when he kind of realized he had that on Bisping and that Bisping couldn't really get to him unless, you know, the, the rare instance when he kind of made a footwork mistake and, and trapped himself a little bit. Then, you know, hell, you can, you can open fire on the guy. I did think though it was one of those situations where you see you got the dude hurt, you're punching him, you're punching him, and then the guy, you know, goes through his back for a choke. And you're, you're thinking when you're watching that, no, what are you doing? Like, that's like a classic mistake is to try and like, you know, to fall to your back, to fall to guard, to try to finish a choke. And then he actually makes it work and rolls him over to mount and chokes him out with one damn hand. You're like, okay, that's confidence right, right. there. And that's one of the most impressive things about Luke Rockhold right now is that, you know, not only is he a huge middleweight who seems super athletic and glides around the cage like a damn jungle cat, but, uh, he's also super well-rounded. Like you, like you saw during this fight, he's, he's got tenacious and dynamic stand-up skills. And then he's got the, the confidence to kind of pull guard and go for the choke there and, and roll it over and finish it with one arm. So not a lot to dislike about Luke Rockhold as far as I'm concerned at the moment. Uh, I want to see at this point. Kind of like an ensemble cast buddy movie, uh, uh, you know, like it's a mad, 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 mad world or, uh, 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 the, the expendables kind of a thing with the middleweight championship contenders at this point, because you got kind of a motley crew going on here. Uh, Vitor Belfort, okay. Anderson Silva, mm -hmm. Jacare Souza. Leoto Machida, Luke Rockhold, Yoel Nick Romero. After, Nick Diaz after he knocks out Anderson Silva? Well, sure. We'll put him in there. Nick Diaz, Tim Kennedy, Gegard Mousasi. Come on. 
Like, that's a sweet crew right there. I would watch a movie about them trying to rob a Vegas casino. Yeah. Uh, Pull off a diamond heist. In no time. In no time. Uh, it Maybe like, even bring Frankie Cars back to be the wheel man. That's right. Cameo appearance by Frankie Cars for right. all the hardcores out there, yeah. the real fight fans. A little Easter egg for them. Uh, so Luke Rockhold kind of sounded like he still wants to fight Jacare again, even though he already beat him back in the Strike Force days. We're obviously going to be waiting a little while before uh, Vitor Belfort and uh, Chris Weidman have a chance to finish their now kind of long-standing business. We hope that they get it done as scheduled this time around. But uh, I don't know, man. Who's up next for Luke Rockhold? He obviously called out Jacare last week. We mentioned. Yoel Romero, which still seems like a fun little fight to me. I think Yoel Romero would be the more interesting fight for fans, like the more guaranteed violence. I can also see how if you're Luke Rockhold, you'd rather fight uh, Jacare, because then it seems like you're kind of fighting up the rankings a little bit, even though, as he said, and Luke Rockhold has a good point when he said that, you know, it upsets him to see Jacare ranked higher than him, because, I mean, he does have that win over Jacare. Uh, but... I think that if you're if you're Rockhold, you you think okay, a win over Jacare and immediately you know they can't deny you a title shot after that. You fight Uel Romero, that's a big, strong, dangerous dude. You know, even if you beat him, it might not be a guaranteed title shot, and there's a good chance you could get hurt, win or lose in a fight like that. You know, I I won't. The first Rockhold Jacare fight was not a spectacular fight. It was yeah. a really close one, but they have both changed enough since then and gotten so much better since then. I would really like to see it again, uh, just to see how different it looks. And I think it would look considerably different. Uh, and I also think that I'd favor Rockhold in that one uh, by a much wider margin than he won the first one. Let's spend a few minutes talking about the uh, poor situation involving Michael Bisping at this point. Uh, well, first of all, let's just mention that Luke Rockhold came out to the Battle of, of New Orleans as his, his introduction song, uh, a song about shooting the British yeah. during the War of 1812. Doesn't it, it's not exactly a hype jam. doesn't really get people on their feet, but it sends a message. It does. It does send a message. Uh, Lou, uh, Michael Bisping at this point, three and four in his last seven fights. Uh, he was coming in off that victory over Kung Lee, and uh, this one, though, made him seem out of championship contention, I would think, if not for the for the remainder of his career, at least for the time being. Uh, but as he said in the post fight, more power to the motherfucker. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, you know, and it, but it's again, it's one of those things with Michael Bisping where when he said that and he had that kind of reaction uh, to the loss, you thought, well, here we go. Like Michael Bisping, the same kind of like brash crudeness or whatever you want to call it that makes him at times so unlikable before the fight in defeat makes him seem super likable yeah. you know that was that was a great michael bisping moment just be hey more, you know he beat me more power to the motherfucker uh even if it did offend the delicate sensibilities of uh uh the the fight pass announcer john gooden is that his name uh yeah yeah uh, I like John Gooden though. Really, man, I do. Yeah. No, I don't. You don't you're not into it. I'm, I'm not so sure on him yet. I like Dan Hardy. I don't know about John Gooden yet. But uh, then later in the press conference, where Bisping's like, "Well, I don't remember anything after the headbutt." It's like, all right, back Bisping, to our old just, tricks. Yeah, it just can't. It can't ever be as simple as really dignified in defeat, can it? Because I don't know, man. That just that's not the way you want to go with that if you're Bisping. Uh, both guys came out and said that the bad feelings that they shared before the fight were very real. But then, like like you do after you spend just over five minutes in the cage with somebody, uh, they squashed the beef pretty damn fast and admitted that while they're not going to be friends, uh, they both respect each other a great deal because they're both warriors, whatever, whatever. Yeah. 
That's how that goes, right? Yeah. At least, at least they didn't do the thing where they said that it was all just to hype to fight. I, I believe this though. I believe that, yeah, they're not going to be friends. You know, it's, they didn't find a, a sudden unexpected companionship in there, but at least they don't actively hate each other anymore. Uh, what's next for Michael Bisping? I was sitting around on, uh, what was it? First time we got the chance to have a night with no fights Sunday. Uh, thinking about this and, uh, while, I don't think that any of us want to see Shogun Hua carry on. I have to admit, it did cross my mind if Shogun felt like dropping to 185, uh, which I think he hinted at in a in an Instagram post to his followers today, albeit one in Portuguese, so I didn't didn't read it. You're but, just guessing. Yeah, well, people said that he hinted that he was going to go to 185, and if he did, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't argue with Shogun against Michael Bisping. That seems like the kind of fight between uh, two old veterans that would be fun to watch even if it doesn't really have any any relevant stakes yeah i guess i couldn't argue with that either i mean i would say that on in the big picture it seems like this is one of those situations where they drop in weight class at the fighter's false friend like it's not going to cure yeah the no one's saying problems. this is going to turn around shogun's Hua's career i'm saying if he's if he's hellbound on doing it like then might as well put him against a guy who's not going to really hurt him yeah exactly okay <laughs> all right i can co-sign that all right well let's do uh are you fucking kidding me and then we'll we'll move on to round number two Ben, an announcement today that I'm pretty excited about. Oh, boy. If the wind shifts this weekend and you tip your ear just right, I think you're going to be able to hear a capacity crowd at a Dave and Buster's down there in San Diego chanting his name, Vanderlei, Vanderlei, Vanderlei. Bellator announced today that Vanderlei Silva is going to say damn any kind of ongoing contractual uh, obligations and or suspension that he has with various athletic commissions. He's going to show up at the Bellator 131 Fan Fest at Dave and Buster's and just hang around being Vanderlei Silva alongside guys like Ken Shamrock and Randy Couture and the ghost of Hoist Gracie just beating motherfuckers at skee ball and shuffleboard. <laughs> and maybe he'll get a wild hair and throw Michael Chandler into the ball pit. I don't know. Do they have a ball pit at Dave and Buster's? If they don't, they're really screwing up. Are you fucking kidding me? I don't know what any of this means, but I kind of like it. Vanderlei Silva gives zero fucks, man. Are you fucking kidding me? The wind would have to shift an awful lot. Uh, I, I've made for the, you to hear the chanting from the Dave and Buster's down there on Camino del Rio Avenue down yeah. in San Diego. Yeah, that's about a hard two day drive from here. Just so you know. Let's uh, do it, man. Why not? Yeah. Go there and see Vanderlei at the Dave and Buster's. Let's get, get some th- buffalo wings and some jalapeno poppers and make a night of it. We'll leave right now. Load up on monster energy drinks on our way out. Uh, well, Chad, this week, my are you fucking kidding me? You know, in an effort to really kind of hype up Ovent St. Prue before this fight, uh, the UFC did what everybody seems to do with Ovent St. Prue, which is really seize on his background as a football player for the University of Tennessee Volunteers where I believe he was mostly a special teamer and, and you know, backup who didn't really get that much playing time and didn't really do that much. Now, I'm, I'll allow. It's pretty awesome. you got to be a pretty good athlete just to be on the University of Tennessee football team. I mean, that's basically like playing professional football, uh, to be on one of the powerhouse football teams in the SEC. But I'm sure you must have seen in the pre-fight hype package, they showed him sitting, like, in a locker room with the University of Tennessee jerseys hanging up, and in the lockers, uh, kind of bookending his, he's sitting in one, and then you see one jersey hanging up right next to him that clearly is supposed to belong to Peyton Manning, 
NFL great Peyton Manning, and the other one on the other side to Reggie White. NFL great Reggie White, both former University of Tennessee volunteer players who they're trying to put Ovent St. Prue beside. Are you fucking kidding me? You're going to put like a special teamer backup who never really did much there next to two of the greatest football players to ever come out of that school. You fucking kidding me with that? Are you fucking kidding me? Why do that? Why not just say he was a really good athlete in college and he was just on a great football team? Because when you do that, you force us to point out how dishonest it is. Well, this was a thing where they send a UFC intern to the bookstore at the University of Tennessee <laughs> to just buy whatever jerseys they had in there, right? So they could hang them in the locker or something. I mean, we are they worried that it's just not going to read as the Tennessee locker room? Come on. <laughs> uh, I heard tell he had three total tackles, something like that, in his career. Is that- I feel like I, I don't know exactly what Reggie White's tally was, but I feel like it was probably more than that. More than three. Uh, well, that's going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock's here. I guess we're going to play a little Master Tweet Theater. That's going to happen. Right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am rowdy and uh, rousedy. What? What was the second one? Good day to you, sir. Okay. All right. Uh, Let's just move on from there. Uh, For those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel is going to read us off some tweets from some people in the MMA sphere, and Chad and I are going to try and guess the tweeters in question, and then we're probably going to get mad and question the whole damn system if we don't get them right. Sound about right? That is what losers do. Uh, I suppose you probably have some sort of vague theme in mind this week. Yes, sir, I do. The theme is time capsule. <sighs> you know, you you make it harder on yourself than it has to be, but fine. If that's what you want, fine. It'll be time capsule. Did I? Did I? Tweets I suggest selected as many as three weeks ago. <laughs> Placed in a time capsule for you to guess at. Okay, mm. so the time capsule is is based on you. Yes, how you young, were the time capsule. How young we were those three <laughs> weeks ago, sir. Mm. Tweet the first. Well, at Alistair Overeem, to me, he up for some duck hunting. Take him today to get fitted for his waders and all his camo. Can't wait. You know what this sounds like? You know where Alistair Overeem's been getting his training lately, don't you, Chad? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Sounds to me like maybe uh, somebody over there at Jackson's is gonna. Uh, Take Alistair Overeem for some some good old-fashioned American fun. You know who that would be? Who? Who, Ben? I'm going to say it's probably the dude who wears the camo wrestling shoes to practice at Jackson's MMA. I'm going to say that's probably Cowboy Cerrone. It should be noted that we've already caught Ben cheating at this game. That's sl- that is slanderous. That's a slanderous lie. But before we started recording this... You think I need to just, cheat to know that one? You're just reading the answers right off Sir Nigel's phone. That's, that's complete bullshit and character assassination. Uh, I'm going to go Cowboy Cerrone here. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Both fine guesses. Both one based, uh, <clears throat> at least one based on real deduction and both correct. It is Cowboy Cerrone. Of course it is. It's teaching, a fucking easy one. Teaching Alistair Overeem to fire a gun when he should be learning to protect speaking his of, jaw. Speaking of which, if you're still looking for shows for the fight pass, <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Well, just wait until somehow they go duck hunting and Alistair Overeem shoots Cerrone and then he's out of the fight with Miles Jury. Thanks, Alistair. 
In the Netherlands, a duck says, Kua. <laughs> Tweet the second. Pats are winning, and I just smashed at Skipper Kelp and Race Car Mulky Golden Tea. Bad day for Skip. What? What? I don't. Where does the at end and, and other English begin on that one? You know, it drifts off into senselessness, but. <clears throat> Could you maybe insert a, like, a really long pause after the Twitter handle of whoever the hell he's talking to? I'll just go ahead and say the name as a name. Okay. So, <clears throat> Pats are winning, and I just just smashed Skipper Kelp and race car Mulky Golden Tea. Bad day for Skip. I got. I know this one. I've got this one. Okay, let's hear your guess. Uh well, noted Patriots fan and guy who all around would like to send the message that he still believes that it's five to ten years ago. UFC president Dana White. That was going to be my guess. Especially, I mean, I don't know that Dana White likes to play golden tea, but he seems like the kind of dude who likes to play golden tea. No, that's that's what I mean. He's Golden tea is, that's his jam. Like, if you told me that, you know, Dana White has a golden tea machine in the Zoop offices, I'd have no problem believing it. And if you told me that he was kind of a jerk about it, like competitive-wise, I'd believe that too. So, yeah, I'm going to also say Dana White. It is Dana White, and he appears to have a golden tea machine in his house. Oh, Jesus Christ. Or a garage where he was photographed with two other dudes, Skipper Kelp and Race Car Mulkey, I suppose. I don't know why I wanted to believe that they were out at a bar somewhere. No, no, just in Dana's garage hearing stories about cardio kickboxing. (laughs) Time capsule. Tweet the fourth. I leave for... Let's just tweet the third. Hmm. Yes, it is. It is tweet the third. I got... Reading off my phone is one of the most important skills an actor can possess. (laughs) Tweet the third. Maddie got straight A's. Carson is a genius. And my baby bird is the poo. My genes can't be that bad because I couldn't ask for better kids. What the fuck is happening? Bird appears to be a name. The name of a baby. Is it spelled in the conventional style? Capital B-I-R-D, bird. Okay. Man, that's a tough one. Who would name... I mean, because the other two names sounded normal, right? Yes, Carson with a K, which is Uh still pretty normal by American standards. And uh, Maddie, short for Madeline, I imagine. Chad, you got any guesses here? I think this sounds like Matt Mitrione, who we know has a bunch of kids... And also seems like the kind of dude who would want to write that one of his kids is the shit, but would censor himself and change it to the poo. So you think the guy who went on the rant about transgender fighter Fallon Fox would be censoring himself here? Perhaps he learned something, do you think? I'm going to say, I'm going to go just, you know, kind of to a lateral jump from Matt Mitrione and go Chris Lytle. Both fine guesses, and both, as usual, wrong. It is Jens Pulver. Oh. For whom bird is a relatively normal name. At least people know what a bird is. I still haven't seen a Jens. I would like to believe that he named his child Bird as a nod to Mike Goldberg, uh, referring to him as the Little Eagle. Yeah. Or to Charlie Parker. (laughs) Okay. great Charlie Parker. Jens Pulver, a huge jazz head, as they say. (laughs) A real hapster. Tweet the fourth. I leave for Sydney now as a proud father, husband, Englishman, and man of the people, representing his family and country to the fullest. British flag emoji, thumbs up emoji, airplane emoji. Okay, we're in a quandary here, Chad. Are we? Well, because 
you want to think that Sir Nigel included an obvious Bisping one just so he could do the voice. That would make sense. That would fit with everything we know about him. Unless, Chad, he knows that we would expect that, and it's actually a Ross Pearson tweet. Yeah? Okay. So obviously I cannot choose the wine in front of me, is what I'm saying. I, I think that he would know that I would think that, and therefore I'm going to say Bisping. Well, that's big of you. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just tap the puck in from right in front of the net and say, uh, wait, did you go Bisping or Pearson? Bisping. Oh, well, that's not big of you. I'm, I think it's Bisping. But what if it's Pearson? What if he's playing us? It's Bisping! It's totally Bisping! He leaves for Sydney, a father, husband, Englishman, and man of the people. All right, fine. Do your voice. <clears throat> I live for Sydney now as a proud father, husband, Englishman, and man of the people, representing his family, his country, to the fullest. British flag emoji, thumbs up emoji, airplane emoji. God damn you. Thank you, Dana White. <laughs> Participating in the absurd fantasy, I may one day be champion. <laughs> Why do you do this to us? <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Quote, have a safe Halloween night. End quote, Michael Myers. <laughs> All right, this is the kind of corny joke that sounds like it's either Randy Couture or the other Randy Couture, Rich Franklin. I'm going to say Randy Couture. Interesting. Uh, I guess I'll say Rich Franklin. I don't know if that's right, but... Sure. Both fine guesses, both types of Randy Coutures, and both wrong! It is Mauro Rinaldo. Oh, damn you, Mauro. Loves Halloween, the movie, and the day. You got us again. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's it for Master Tweet Theater. So, Nigel, what do you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished wrapping a very interesting project. It's about the angel of death attempting to understand human love by taking the form of a handsome man, only to get shot down in a helicopter over Rwanda. I see. And what's it called? It's called Meet Joe Blackhawk Down. And what role do you play? I play a fast-talking hooker with Ebola, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, that... Sir Nigel Longstock, and that was Master Tweet Theater. Thank you, sir. Chad, check your calendar. Is it 2005? Are we about to enter the Saitama Super Arena? Because it sure as hell feels like it, since this dun, weekend, dun, dun, dun. we're going to watch Mark Hunt and Fabrizio Verdun, the goddamn go-horse. They're going to do it for the interim UFC heavyweight strap in Mexico City in the year 20-fucking-14. How awesome is that? Well, yeah, aside from the year and the location, this could totally be the final of... Uh... The Pride Super Hulk heavyweight. Pride didn't no, do the Super Hulk no tournament. Limit. It doesn't matter. We'll just blend them all together. Seems like something. They're all I the feel same like that, to you, isn't it? I feel like that's true in spirit. Okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, combined age of this weekend's UFC heavyweight title hopeful, 77 years old. Nice. Uh, 
I know that we're all excited to see Mark Hunt get his opportunity to go out there and, and try to finish off the greatest comeback story in the history of organized athletics or whatever. Uh, but I feel sad for Cain Velasquez. I've felt sad for Cain Velasquez the entire time. Uh, Mark Hunt is a likable guy that we seem to all like to pretend is the crazy uncle, uh, who comes over and is just, I guess, terrifying at the, at family gatherings. But at the same time, hard for me to get beyond what might have been at, at UFC 180 because I feel like Fabricio Verdum against Cain Velasquez, uh, was going to be a hell of a fight and the kind of heavyweight matchup that I would be really excited to watch. And, uh, you know, obviously, obviously also an important one for the UFC that wanted to have the, uh, the Mexican American heavyweight champion go down there and main event a show in, in Mexico City. Um, so a lot of that has been lost by the, the inclusion or the injury and then the, the inclusion of Mark Hunt. Uh, and, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll appreciate if he somehow decide, uh, manages to pull off the upset and, uh, and kind of come full circle from where he was several years ago. But at the same time, uh, uh, it's hard for me to get over the bummer nature of this, man. You're acting like this is the, the, the door is closed on this, that, that just because we, we're not seeing uh, Cain Velasquez and Fabricio Verdum this weekend, that we're just never going to see it. No, I, I assume that we will see it down the road. I'm just talking about my feelings surrounding this specific event. Uh, I mean, we all know the heavyweight championship is cursed, and <laughs> are we all feeling a little bit nervous about the future of Cain Velasquez at this point? Yeah, I think we we are, and we don't want to see him become a cautionary tale just because he's a guy that has so much potential that we thought he had the the you know could be the dominant heavyweight of his generation. Um, but uh, we're just, I guess, we're going to take UFC 180 for what it is, and we're, and we're going to go from there. I'm sure we could get Cain to coach another season of the Ultimate Fighter. Well, he gets healthy and, and probably then gets injured again. But this one this week, I don't know, man. It's it's going to be fun, but that's about it for me. You know, you're you're such a downer. I refuse. I refuse to be depressed about seeing Mark Hunt and Fabricio Verdum. That's going to be fun. That is going to be some fun shit. And who knows? Like, there's actually a chance that Mark Hunt could win that thing and have a UFC belt. I mean, not the UFC belt, but a UFC belt put around his prodigious waist. Come on, man. And is that, would that be a reality that we all want to live in? I can't say no. I can't say I don't want to live in that reality. I mean, look, if we can't have Cain Velasquez either way, if that part is already settled and it's not up to us and, and we don't get a choice in the matter, then shit, man. Let's have some fun with Mark Hunt in the, in the interim, Chad. It yeah, just, it no, works I, out. I, I hear what you're saying and I'm not totally against it. I'm just. You know, I have a hard time getting up for this one and, and have a hard time completely celebrating if we get come out of it with a UFC heavyweight champion that uh, is going to put reporters on blast when they call up and interview him because he apparently doesn't know that they're calling to quote him for a story. <laughs> that is ridiculous. He, he thinks that they're calling just a chat. I don't know. Let me tell you something. If you can't get up for this main event, then Saturday night is going to be a rough night for you because <laughs> there's not a whole lot else. Uh, I mean... You got uh, yeah Jake Ellenberger and and Kelvin Gastelum that ought to be an interesting fight. Uh, Ricardo Lamas and Dennis Bermudez. You know I'm I'm interested to see Dennis Bermudez work again because it seems like uh, he's really hit his stride. And then after that, boy, I don't know, man. I don't know what you have to look forward to there. So you better manufacture some some enthusiasm for the, for this main event. Otherwise, you were it's going to be a long one for Chad Dundas. Well, I'll be enthusiastic 
if the go horse emerges with the title, I feel like that would be a long time coming for Fabrice over doom. And, and clearly the guy who uh, was supposed to be in this fight, the guy who was supposed to get the opportunity uh, and, and the guy, you know, was, is, has only lost one fight dating back to 2009. And that was that weird kind of uh, tepid decision that he lost to Alistair Overeem in the, in the strike force grand prix. So uh, in the, in the interest of pure sport and competition, uh, which we know you're all about. I'll be I'll be ready to see Fab Verdum hang a hang a, hang a banner at home. The UFC they give you a banner, right? UFC <laughs> heavyweight title banner. I, I think that they you can put in the rafters at the. They gym. recommend a guy at the mall who can make you a banner, but you have to pay for it. Uh, here's a question for you: Say Fabrizio Verdum goes out there and beats Mark Hunt, beats him impressively too. You know, out 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 kickboxes him, gets him down, submits him, whatever, does his thing. Uh, you know, maybe even make some funny faces along the way as he's known to do. Are you now more excited to see him face Kane Velasquez, assuming Kane Velasquez ever does get healthy and is able to come back and fight somebody? Uh, or do you consider Mark Hunt below Travis Brown and therefore you're not any more excited about it? Uh, well, I, I mean, if he looks impressive, I don't think that it can hurt, you know, and, and let's be honest, Fabrizio Verdum has looked super impressive the last, uh, couple few times we've seen him come out there. It seems like his boxing is, is getting to the point where, uh, kind of caught up with the, the amazing jujitsu skills that he has. And, and I guess at his advanced age makes him an, an all around threat pretty much everywhere you go. I still don't think he's going to want to mess around with the super Samoan on his feet too much because that would be the, uh, one of the only ways that you could lose this fight. If you're Fabricio Verdum would so, be, so you're saying uh, fall, flop to guard and butt scoot. Yeah. See, That's well, your game plan. you can elect to start on the mat, right? Like from, <laughs> if from, you win the coin toss, from like can. all fours, I if think, you win the coin, toss. well, if he wins the coin toss, I think w- w- he should start on all fours in the center of the mat. You know, I'm interested in the, the, the characterization of Mark hunt as the, the scary uncle at family gatherings. Right. And I think that's not necessarily, unfitting but it also makes me wonder like it's one of those things it reminds me of uh reading that uh new yorker profile on joe biden where it seems like we've all as a culture kind of decided on this perception of joe biden that we like and that is fun and yet is not necessarily real and is definitely not how he sees himself and he seems a little confused by and doesn't exactly see how he got there and it seems like we've kind of done the same thing with mark hunt where We've decided, hey, it's just like he's a fun knockout artist. You know, he's not great. And that, that's why it's cool to kind of rally for Mark Hunt and get behind Mark Hunt and hope that he gets these opportunities that he maybe hasn't totally exactly earned. Uh, and yet when you talk to him, he's like, no, I'm trying to be the fucking best fighter in the world. I'm not interested in being your, your tough guy token uh, out there just to entertain you by getting hit in the head and, and hitting people in the head really hard. Like, that's not what I'm here to do. And it makes you just wonder, at this point, have we just made up our minds? Are we gonna, are we gonna change anything about that? Or does Mark Hunt just have to settle for, take your fan love however it comes? Well, I would say for starters, he kinda started to seem less fun to me when he freaked out on Stephen Morocco, but. Yeah, well, uh, okay. Unlike Joe Biden, Mark Hunt does record those Instagram selfie videos of himself that would seem to back up our public perception of him as a guy who has a recliner and kind of leans back in it and mumbles incomprehensible stuff 
while the rest of the family is opening Christmas presents, right? <laughs> like, we didn't just pull this out of nowhere. And I mean, are we ever going to accept him as the best fighter in the world? Well, if he beats Fabricio Verdum and becomes the UFC interim uh, champion and and goes on to fight Cain Velasquez, uh, that would be his chance, I would think, because, you know, regardless of what we think about the guy, if he pulls off those two wins, uh, it would be pretty hard to make any other case for him, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, th- I still think if he beats Fabricio Verdum, I think it's going to be, you know, maybe not unlike when Fabricio Verdum beat, beat Fedor. And I mean, a, a lot of it, I'm sure, depends on how it goes down and everything. But I, I think that the general reaction would be, holy shit, that's awesome and maybe not totally just, uh, but we're going to enjoy it anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, you could get yourself into a real uh, saga here, right? Oh, I love a saga. Uh Mark Hunt beats Fabricio Verdum, then then he he gets lined up with we assume a returning Cain Velasquez, which that could take forever in and of itself. Uh would we really enjoy an outcome where Mark Hunt then beats Cain Velasquez and they probably have to do the damn thing over again? <laughs> and well, oh, I, would enjoy and, it I mean, so much. let's just think about this, right? If Mark Hunt emerges with the UFC interim championship, he'll be the champion, but he'll still be two one and one in his last three fights. And it won't totally erase the memory of Junior Dos Santos, like kind of beating the crap out of him for nearly three full rounds back at UFC 160. Well, I think if you're Junior Dos Santos, the best possible outcome is that Mark Hunt claims the interim and then the real heavyweight championship. And then you can make a pretty good case for another crack at it. I don't know. I mean, I think if he actually wins those two fights, then it'll be tough to really go back and, and use some of that stuff against him too much. Because if he wins the fights, he wins the fights. And also, let's not forget that we're talking about the UFC heavyweight division. We're not talking about light heavyweight, the vanity division. We're not talking about the, you know, the workman down at 155 or 170. We're talking about heavyweight where you can be any goddamn age, have any goddamn record as long as you can string together one or two wins. I mean, if you have a two-fight win streak as a heavyweight, you're hot. You are hot, baby. So, I mean, if you take it in that context, hell, man, why not? Why not Mark Hunt? Yeah, but I mean, if I guess if we all like Mark Hunt so much, the last thing we would ever want to see happen to the guy is him win the UFC Heavyweight Championship because then – you know, his plane will crash on the, on the flight home from wherever they're from Mexico City. Uh, and he'll probably live out his days as a castaway on some deserted island, uh, with the UFC heavyweight title, like propped up against a palm tree. And then when he tries to spell out help, it's just incomprehensible and the airplane's going overhead. Can't make sense of it. Hopefully he can still post the Instagram videos though. <laughs> Somehow. Uh, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, speaking of a couple of guys who could potentially get typecast as the crazy uncle who comes to family dinner and says that they couldn't make their court appearance because they have got a fractured skull, uh, Stefan Bonner and Tito Ortiz are going to get together this weekend at the uh, main event of Bellator 131 uh, to, I guess, allegedly have a, a light heavyweight fight. 
man. One that that uh, <laughs> allegedly, huh? During the during the run up has been mostly notable for uh, when Stefan Bronner brought uh, a special guest into the into the cage. Uh, wearing a mask, two masks, two masks, and then uh, uh, un un unveiled the uh, what the sick one, the crazy one, the insane, the one. insane one. That's right, Justin McCauley yeah. uh, as the as the mystery guest. I feel like the lead up to this fight has been kind of quiet. Have you been surprised by that, or like I thought we would see more attempts at trash talk and more at least more. Uh, headline making stuff leading up to this fight. I don't know. I feel like I've seen a fair amount of it pop up in the news. I expect that to really ramp up this week. Uh, I think if you're Bellator, you're probably thanking the MMA gods that Cain Velasquez got hurt and, and pull out of that bout, right? Because now UFC 180 is not such a tough, uh, opponent to go up against. Uh, that night, you don't have such a hard time like we were talking about last week that, hey, if somebody was feeling like they got to get their MMA quota in on the weekend and they don't want to necessarily drop a whole bunch of money to see uh, a pretty decent heavyweight main event and not a whole lot else at UFC 180, between World Series of Fighting and Bellator, you can kind of get your fill there. You know, to me, you know, I look at this fight card, I could not be less interested in Tito Ortiz versus Stefan Bonner. Like, I, if you want to do that, fine. It just, it means absolutely fucking nothing to me. And especially to have that be taking billing over Will Brooks and Michael Chandler, which is a fight that I do actually want to see. I'm curious to see how that one will go, uh, especially because it seemed like maybe Chandler thought Will Brooks was going to be a little easier of an opponent than he was last time. You know, that's a, that's a fight right there. That's the one that you want to be directing people's attention to. But I guess if you're Bellator, you'll settle for getting the eyeballs however you can get them, right? Yeah, uh... Do you think it's a matter of come for Tito Bonner, uh, stay for Brooks Chandler? Is that what they're hoping? I mean, I, I hope that it's the opposite, right? Although, you know, Spike TV does seem to be making its money off those people that, that know that there's fighting on that channel and will just turn <laughs> yes. on to watch it. And for, you know, for all we know, those people think Tito Ortiz is still the UFC light heavyweight champion. Um, <laughs> do we, do we have a confirmation on a start time for World Series of Fighting 15? Because I know Bellator, uh, the main card starts at, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and I, last week we had laid out the scenario that you just mentioned that people would, would watch the afternoon World Series of Fighting card and then roll straight into, uh, Bellator or vice versa. But I'm, I was just casting around online while you were talking and, uh, I didn't see a, a start time for yeah. WSOF. I don't know. I don't know what their start time is. I know that it's in Florida, right? So, you know, you, you're on East Coast time. You could maybe use that to your advantage there if you're so inclined. Uh, I mean, it is it is still kind of a, a lot of choices to be made there for the MMA fan. And I guess I, I am I continue to be baffled by how many people are willing to at least pretend like Tito Ortiz versus Stefan Bonner is meaningful or important or anything they want to see because i just like i don't it doesn't matter who wins like they're they're whatever grudge they have against each other means nothing to me does not interest me at all uh i don't think it's going to be an like a very good fight as far as just athletically what they both have at this point like i just i don't see it like and it seems surprising to me that so many people are willing to either get excited or act excited for it. And I wonder if that's also in the kind of Brock Lesnar we want to remember back when uh, shit was crazy popular kind of thing where people want to pretend that maybe it's still Tito Ortiz the, is still the Huntington Beach bad boy coming out there in his flame shorts and it's, you know, 2004 all over again. Yeah, 
and I mean, from a cartoonish, I brought Justin McCauley into the cage wearing two masks type view, uh, I'm not disappointed to watch this fight. Like, I will watch Michael Chandler, Will Brooks, and then stick around for Tito Ortiz against Stefan Bonner. But I think you're right that this could go horribly wrong. Like, (laughs) that this could turn out to be, uh, you know, one of the worst fights, one of the worst main event fights for sure that we, that we've seen in a long time. Although, Maybe these dudes will surprise us, man. Like, what would it take? Not much. Yeah, and I guess, you know, Tito did surprise us when he got to fight a damn middleweight uh, at the last one. But you look at this card as a whole, and it's not bad. I mean, uh, Mo Lawal with, uh, with Joe Vadepo, another uh, late replacement, their opponent. Uh, Melvin Manhoff probably going to go out there and do something terrible to Joe Schilling, and, and you know, that'll be fun. Uh, and then uh, Nam Pham and Mike Richmond there, uh, you know, maybe doing some some fun little guy violence. Who knows? So... And you know you got a good you got a good enough thing to get people to crowd around the TV to watch you for free on Spike TV without this ridiculous Stephen Bonner Tito Ortiz stuff. Uh, I don't know, man. I guess it's the kind of thing that just makes me wonder about Bellator's larger vision at this point. Yeah, I just read today that on Saturday they they claim that they will announce the particulars of their first three events of of 2015, which I think will give us a, a better idea where we're going with the Scott Coker regime because uh, I still feel like the, the, the end of 2014 is kind of like them finishing out uh, like old business kind of stuff that was uh, at least for the most part already on the docket and then like the end, the tail end of the Bjorn Rebney era. Um, and I, I think that 2015 will be the year that, that Scott Coker really puts his stamp on, on Bellator and whether or not that means more Ortiz versus Bonner type, type matchmaking. I, I, I don't know, but I mean, I still feel like it's too early to make a call yet on which way we're going, uh, with Bellator and, and hopefully, uh, this this Saturday we'll we'll kind of get a better idea. You of need that. to get a look at the schedule so you can see Vanderlei Silva versus Hoist Gracie on there and really get start to get pumped up. Well, I'm hoping for a Vanderlei run in. If you want to <laughs> know the truth, I didn't want to do any spoilers on the podcast, but uh, you know whoever wins the the main event of this, I'm going to say this right now: if Vanderlei shows up to do all these fight week preparation stuff and public appearances, and he's carrying a cane all week. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> or a tennis racket. <laughs> because that is going to be useful somehow. You know, somebody's going to get too close to the edge of the cage. Vanderlei's going to reach in there with his cane and trip him or something. And then, man, who knows where it goes from there. I'll just mark my words. Or if he shows up, if Vanderlei shows up and the entire time he's doing this stuff, he's wearing a three-piece suit and a monocle. Oh, boy. You know some shit is going down. What if the, the old-school, wild-eyed axe murderer shows up stalking around doing that thing where he gets closer to you while he's talking just slowly <laughs> creeping creeping to within punching distance what if that guy shows up uh and, and climbs in the cage you wouldn't you wouldn't be like all right let's see where this is going stefan bonner against vanderlei silva yeah you know no i'd I, like to see that stopped by a federal injunction right <laughs> yes yeah no that that would be a, a great one just to uh to force like some kind of court documents to read the axe murderer. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's do just saying stuff and then, uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, uh, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, you know how, uh, in the lead up to the, uh, Shogun Hua first Jimmy Manoa fight and then Shogun Hua OSP fight, uh, we saw that, that Rogan cut, uh, promo 
where first he's talking about how awesome Jimmy Mano is and then about how Ovin St. Prue is a destroyer. Uh, but the big one they really went with was how he talks about how he never wants to miss a Shogun fight. Well, I don't know exactly what he was doing on Saturday, but I was looking at Joe Rogan's Twitter and it seemed like on Sunday morning he was talking about the fights that happened Saturday night. Didn't see anything from him on Saturday night about what was actually going on. It seemed like the tweets of a man who ostensibly from the outside was catching up on the fights on Sunday morning because he didn't see them on Saturday night. So I guess what I'm just saying is it kind of looks like the guy who said he never wants to miss a Shogun fight might have missed a Shogun fight. Just saying. Just saying. Well, I mean, we know at this point that one day the UFC had Joe Rogan come into the studio and just do a bunch of sound bites, right? Like, <laughs> go alphabetically go through the UFC roster and be like, I never want to miss a Sam Alvey fight. Yes. I never want to miss a Sam Stout fight. Yes. I Jake never want Ellenberger to miss a Shogun Hua fight. J- Jake Ellenberger is a destroyer. Joe Ellenberger is a destroyer. Yeah. So on and so forth. Well, Ben, like we talked about earlier in the show on Wednesday at this star-studded media event, the UFC promises to unveil the entirety of its 2015 schedule. You know, considering where we started in this sport, it's kind of difficult to fathom that the announcement of next year's schedule would be a thing. But I guess that's where we're at in this sport. And in advance of that, Ben, I just wanted... To just say what is the exact proper number of UFC events in a year. Okay. 28. Huh. 28 events. Because that gives you 12 pay-per-view events, 12 cable TV Fox Sports 1 events, and four uh, big-time Fox shows, right, that you could do once a quarter or something like that. Still get you... Two shows a month, so once every two weeks or so, plus, you know, every third month, you're going to have three shows a month. And, uh, you know, if you want to go to Australia or you want to go to China or you want to go to Brazil, I'm super happy to have you do that. I would just love it if you would do it within that framework instead of making it extra. I'm just saying. 28 events. Just saying. Just saying. No chance it'll happen. Yeah, they're going to do double that. Uh that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all of the stuff that happens at the three dueling events that we have this weekend. As for right now, though, we're done. We're through. We are out. So uh, you want to hit up the gas station, maybe get some corn dogs, and we'll, we'll set off for San Diego? Yeah, I mean, if we're going to make it, we better get on the road now. Yeah. Although, I'll tell you this. I might not eat on the way down there. Because I want to be super hungry when we show up at the Dave and Buster's. Right. Because I want to make sure that I get my fill of uh, fried. What do they have? I've never even been to the Dave and Buster's. I've been to 